Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. This morning, I want to do something that I have not done for a very long time. I am going to preach from the King James Version of the Bible. A word of explanation is probably in order. Let me go on record as having said that I understand why some people have very strong preferences uh, regarding which English translation of the Bible is the best. If you want to fill an evening or 12 of your time, just go to good old Google and put in best Bible translation and then put on your helmet and fasten your seatbelt because there's more reading than you can do in what's left of your lifetime. But I should warn you that a very small amount of what you read there will be scholarly and the vast majority of what you read will be fueled by passion, opinion, and misinformation on both sides of the coin. So all of that is to say, I would, with um, a certain disclaimer about how bad it gets for you, encourage you to maybe read a little bit about that at some point, but I'm not going to take the time to uh, delve into that discussion today. I'll just tell you this. My position comes down to this. I think it's hard to find a bad Bible, okay? I just think it's hard to find a bad Bible. I believe that God still desires and really works hard at making himself known to people. God isn't trying to hide from us. He's trying to come out on the stage and reveal himself to us in real world, believable kinds of ways that make it possible for us to know him, to know that he loves us, and for us to then follow him as we live our lives. One of his chief tools for doing that is giving that collection of books that we call the Bible to us. If you've never read about how the Bible came to be, it's a fascinating, fascinating story that takes centuries and centuries of time, but you can see the hand of God working in it all down through history. And what we have before us now as the Bible is is a collection of 66 manuscripts that were put together over about 1,500 years' time by about 40 different writers, all of whom somehow coming from different cultures too, managed to weave together one story, the story of a God who could not stand the fact that human beings were ruining themselves, a God who could no longer stand the notion of being separated from the people that he had created. So he came running our direction with obvious signs of love, with an offer of forgiveness and of eternal life connected with him. And I'm just going to tell you, I think that God is so into getting that story out there, known by people who do not yet know it or know him, that he has said, I'll work with just about anything. He works with the created order around us to reveal himself. He works through the testimony of fallen, broken people like me. And he works through translation committees who think they know better than other translation committees. And so I'll just say this, that any time, I think, any time anybody really wants to, to get to know God, and they'll just apply themselves to the, to the business of picking up some Bible and starting to read some part of it. God says, great, I can work with that, and he'll meet you there. It's why from week to week, I'll preach from a bunch of different translations of the Bible, but um, most of the time from the one that, that I, I've spent most of my time with as, uh, as a believer of the New International Version of the Bible, and I won't even claim that I like it the best. It's just the one that I've used the most. But the Bible that I got started with was this one right here, uh, and it's a King James Version of the Bible. It has my name engraved right there. It was a Christmas present from my dad, who was not a follower of Jesus at that point. 
Uh, I used this Bible to prepare the first sermon that I ever preached when I was 11 years old. I preached at the uh, United Methodist Church of Oakton, Missouri. I don't have any idea what I preached about that day. I don't remember at all. But I remember that uh, shortly after I preached at Oakton United Methodist Church, that my pastor at my home church, the Church of the Nazarene in Lamar, Missouri, came to me and he said, hey, I heard you preached. I said, I did. And he seemed offended that I didn't preach my first sermon at my home church. And uh, so I told him I tried to get him into my busy preaching schedule. And uh, so uh, he sat down and he helped me, helped me prepare another sermon one Sunday night. Our friends and neighbors, people who'd never agreed to attend church with us before, packed that place as a little 12-year-old boy. Got up there, and I preached from Acts chapter 2. It's a long, it's a long chapter, 44, 46 verses, something like that. And uh, I remember very distinctly, it took me longer to read the Scripture than it did to preach the sermon, which might not be a bad thing, you're thinking, right now. But at the end of the sermon... Um, my pastor made me walk to the back. What was scarier than, than preaching was that I had to walk to the back of the sanctuary and shake hands with every single person as they left. So I stood back there with lots of people, you know, rubbing my, the top of my head because you do that to little kids. But uh, at any rate, I stood back there and there's this little, little lady named Mrs. Robinson. She had white hair and I don't know her first name because I was raised in a time and place when everybody older than me was Mr. and Mrs. So it was just Mrs. Robinson. I don't, I don't know her name. But uh, she walked up to me, and she was just about as tall as me when I was a 12-year-old boy. And she looked me in the eye, and she said, she quoted the Apostle Paul. She said, the scriptures say that the workman is worth his hire. That means that you should get paid to preach this sermon. And she handed me a quarter. (laughs) 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 Which is probably about, that's it, right there. It's taped in my Bible. See? It's taped in my Bible. Aw. You know, usually awe isn't the uh, response I'm looking for, but I think it was that time. <laughs> yep, that's, that's it right there. It set me on a course, you know, for the rest of my life. My uh, earliest acquaintance with the Scriptures then is in that, uh, that strange meter and the, and the odd endings of verbs and the strange pronouns of King James English. Some of it, that's, that's how I know the Bible because I memorized it when this big. There's somebody like Tina Benjamin who was teaching me to... to Memorize the scriptures when I was this big. And, and later on, when I got into Bible quizzing, some more people like Tina and Ed Benjamin were saying, study this. And so um, it, was all, it was all King James at that point. And so much of the scripture that is lodged in my head and my heart comes with all the these and the, and the thous attached. I chose the King James version for this morning's sermon because of its word choice. Uh, two weeks ago, we were gathered here for worship, just one day after Brian Johnson's funeral. Most of you, I know, were here with us that Sunday. And on that day, I talked about wrestling with God, how we disagree with or, or fail to understand why it is that he allows some of the things that he allows to happen in our world. I think that's something that everybody had better wrestle with, and we better find some real answers or we make shipwreck of the faith. And so if you weren't able to be with us that Sunday and you'd like some help with that, um, you can get on our website, firstnaz.com, and uh, the media page, and uh, you can listen to that. But suffice it to say that I believe that God welcomes us to wrestle with him over the things that we do not understand or don't think that we can bear. Most of us have been doing some wrestling lately, haven't we? My wife was raised in an independent charismatic church. Uh, don't worry, she's a real Christian, and so are those people. They see the world through a uh, slightly different lens than we do. I always ask them to make sure they got the snakes put away when I go back there. 
they don't think that's as funny as you do. Just, um, they, see the, they see the world, and they see the church, and they see salvation through a little bit different lens than we do. And because of that fact, um, I would say this. I would not say they are wrong. What I would say is that they add another facet to the gem that is the church of Jesus Christ. I'm glad the whole church of Jesus Christ doesn't look like just this one. Agreed? Yeah. Yeah, a little, um, I mean, I like vanilla, but come on. Once in a while, I want a little something else, right? Laura's church that she grew up in, they're real Christians, and they had a, a beautiful facet to the gem that is the church. They taught me a lot about the Christian faith that I otherwise might not have been exposed to, and I intend absolutely no disrespect toward them when I describe one of the, their beliefs uh, in a certain way that I think gets rather right to the point. They have a tendency to see a demon behind every bush. By that I mean that they are very aware, intentionally so, of the spirit world or the spirit realm, and they see supernatural causes behind absolutely everything that happens in this world of ours. What I might see as a common cold that just has to be suffered through and waited out, they might see as a spirit of sickness that ought to be rebuked. I'm not going to argue with them. Laura and I met when we were just 19 years old. We met when we were just 19, and and we were trying, each of us, to figure out our faith. Coming from two very different Christian traditions, we had some rather interesting arguments and discussions. And honestly, when when it was all settled, each of us really had had won the other over in in a number of different departments. And and we ended up with a gratitude and a great respect for one another's faith roots. Having said that, let me say that Laura does not exactly share the same lens as the church that raised her. Using the same phrase as before and still with no intended disrespect, she doesn't see a demon behind every bush. But I will tell you this, that is one spiritually perceptive woman. That's why whenever she says to me something like, I think we're dealing with a spiritual battle here, I sit up and I take notice. Last week, after uh, wrapping up the worship service here, she and I were walking across the foyer down to my office, and she said something of that nature. Radar up. I was listening. We talked about it for a few moments, did whatever it was that I needed to do in the office, and as we came back this way and ascended the stairs, we were walking across the foyer ready to head across the street to our house. And another person who has what I sometimes call good spiritual radar, a person whose spiritual discernment I trust, period, um, it was Andy Gibbler, said to Laura and me almost the exact same thing that Laura had said. And so in that moment, I realized something. The Holy Spirit quickened both Laura's and Andy's comments to my heart and my mind, and I knew that God himself was trying to tell me something. I mean this only half-jokingly, gentlemen. When your wife talks to you about spiritual things, very often it is God trying to tell you. In separate conversations, both Laura and Andy recounted to me a long litany of extraordinary hardships that have been leveled against the people who are a part of this church in recent days. And particularly, they listed difficult things that were faced by the leaders of this congregation. Andy told me that he could just close his eyes and and picture the, the church board seated around the tables where we meet in the lower chapel. And because we're creatures of habit, we always sit in the same places. And he could he could just go around the room and see each person. And as he saw their faces, he could... He was reminded of the list of 
things that they and their families are currently facing or have been through in very recent days. And it all adds up to one thing. It leads up to this knowledge that this church has been and continues to be under spiritual attack in reference to their personal or their family life. Very few of the leaders of this congregation would say that 2014 has been a great year thus far. I have another reference point. Whenever I think I have discerned something spiritually, I consult with Pastor Bill. So I did that earlier this week, Monday or Tuesday, whenever it was, Wednesday, I think. When No, it was Thursday when I finally got to see Bill this week. Wow. He saw things the way that Andy and Laura had, and he added this. I'm, I'm quoting him. He said, it's still no fun to go through these difficult things, but it's a clear sign that we are headed the right direction as a church. When Satan goes against the leadership of a church, it's because they're following God's plan, and he doesn't like that. Bill, thank you for helping me and us to understand those things. It was after hearing those words that a phrase from the good old King James version of the Bible started drifting through my mind again, and, and it deals with this, this idea of wrestling. Two weeks ago, we looked at the phrase as it appears in the Genesis account of Jacob wrestling with God, opposing God in a conflict, but ultimately gaining God's blessing. Still that idea, Jacob versus God, it's, it's one of opposition. Today, I want to work with the idea of wrestling with God from the perspective of being on the same team with God and wrestling with him against a common opponent. So if you have a King James version of the Bible with you or, or can find one on your electronic device, flip to the New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 10. Otherwise, you can look at the screens. And Though the language that we will read is that form of English as it was used 400 years ago in a distant land, I think we can work with it enough to learn a, a few things or to helpfully be reminded of a few, few things. Remember that this letter was written to a church that had recently gone through some extremely hard times. Let's take a look together and listen with our hearts and spirits. Ephesians chapter 6, I'll begin reading with verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance, supplication for all saints and for me, the utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Isn't that beautiful? May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. I'm, I'm your pastor, or one of them anyway. And whatever else is true about this job in the American church anymore, I know that it means a couple of things. It means that I am to teach you about how to live with God and for God in this world. And it also means that at some level, I'm supposed to provide some protection for this flock. 
When I heard from Laura and Andy and Bill, the language of attack on our church family, there rose up in my heart a zeal to protect you. And so my heart began to prepare itself to fight in the way that I have been taught all these years to fight these battles. Some of those lessons came at Laura's church. Today's message comes from that zeal and for the purposes of helping you know how to fight our common enemy. I just want to tell you today some things that you need to know whenever you're in a spiritual battle. First thing you need to know in a spiritual battle is this. Though you feel weak, you can actually be strong. Though you feel weak, you can actually be strong. If you've been around me much at all, even if that's only listening to me preach, you know that I am a man of passions. I feel things very, very strongly. Sometimes that works for me and makes me a charismatic leader, and sometimes it works against me because I get hurt very, very deeply. I can feel a powerful affection. I can feel a very deep wound. But I've learned this one thing. Whatever I feel, it's just what I feel. There came a point as a, as a young man that I was taught that I couldn't any longer allow the things that I feel to govern my life. So in any given situation, I try to quickly identify what I'm feeling, but then, but then pursue the truth about the issue, regardless of what I feel, particularly to see if God's Word, the Bible, has anything to say about the situation that I'm facing. The Bible does have something to say about those times when I'm feeling very weak, And we read it just a few moments ago. Though I may feel weak, I can actually be strong. Verse 10 actually puts it in the form of a command. Be strong, but then tells us how to do it. It says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. In other words, Paul, who wrote these things, was telling us to um, not to trust our feelings of weakness more than we trust the ability of God to get us through our challenges. Did you hear that? He's telling us not to trust what we feel. I feel weak. I feel afraid. I feel like I'm losing the fight. He says, don't trust what you feel more than you trust the God who can get you through the fight. Honestly, you may hear from both God and your feelings. Whenever you're facing any difficulty, if I'm going to be really honest, I would say sometimes you don't hear from God in the hard times. You only hear what you feel. But we go right back to what is taught us in his word that he is with us, that he will never forsake us. And because of that, when we turn from what we feel back to what we know, we find the ability to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Because I know that I can count on him to strengthen me enough to win any wrestling match or battle. So know this, if you're feeling weak and tired this morning, you can become strong. You can. But in order to do it, you're going to have to admit your weakness and and your need for his strength. And you're going to have to admit that to God himself. He's waiting to hear from you on the matter so that he can then go big in your life. As long as I'm talking about it, you should know this, that though you feel weak, um, you can actually be strong. Listen, lots of strong people have lost the battle and lost the war. The Scriptures teach us that not only can we be strong in the Lord and in his might, but that we can win. That we are more than conquerors through Christ. Paul said we go from victory to victory. I like it. Sounds like a streak, right? From victory to victory. Yeah. Second thing you need to know in a spiritual battle is this. Uh, you need to know who you're fighting against 
And you need to know who not to fight against. You need to know who you are fighting against and who not to fight against. The passage makes a, a brief statement that I think clears the matter up for us. We don't wrestle or fight against human beings. If you find yourself in a fight with other human beings, you are fighting the wrong enemy. We don't wrestle or fight against human beings, Paul said. Listen to me closely now. It's very important that we remember that our fight is not against flesh and blood because in times of great stress or great challenge, we will be tempted to bicker and to argue and to criticize and to accuse one another's motives. Sadly, Christians seem to be less aware of this than most people. And because of it, we fall for this temptation nearly all of the time. It's why church people have gained the reputation for being judgmental, divisive, crabby, and critical. Listen, we don't have to fall for that anymore. We don't have to fall for that after today because we're learning the importance of identifying the true enemy. And people are not the enemy. People are captives of the enemy. Hang on to that for a minute. People aren't the enemy. They're captives of the enemy. Let's go back to World War II. We, were, uh, we, we had some friends and we had some enemies. Our friends, we called the allies. The, uh, the enemy was well, basically just Germany. Right? You know all those German camps that were populated with prisoners of war? Not the ones that were, that were filled with, with Jews. But specifically the ones that were, that were um, populated by prisoners of war. Saw a few more of those in Asia because of the Japanese opposition. Who were the people in those camps? They were, they were prisoners of our enemy, right? They, they, they were us. Do you get that? The prisoner of my enemy is my friend or brother. What kind of monsters would we have been if we waded into all of the prisoner of war camps and shot the prisoners when we fight human beings? Treating them like they are our enemies. It's like walking into the prisoner of war camp and shooting the prisoners. We have one enemy. We do not wrestle. We do not fight against flesh and blood, but against all these spiritual beings that Paul was talking about. You and I don't have to fall for this whole temptation to bite and devour one another. Christians believe that there is a spirit world. Otherwise, we couldn't even believe in the existence of God. There's a physical realm with which our bodies intersect and interact every moment of our lives. But there's also a spiritual realm in which our spirits are engaged. And if we're oblivious to that fact because of ignorance or because of forgetfulness, then we will be powerless and we will be victimized in times of spiritual battle. And we will then, unaware of the spiritual realm, we will be suckers who fall for the temptation to fight against flesh and blood. If you lose sight of who the real enemy is and you fight against humans you can have the absolute assurance of being defeated because you'll be distracted from the real fight and the real enemy. We don't know how long this time of affliction that our church is going through right now uh, is going to last, so I think it would pay for us to learn how to fight. So let's remind ourselves of this principle daily so that we can be assured of victory in the end. This one thing, we will not fight against one another. If you are with me, Please pledge your faithfulness in this matter by a hearty and genuine amen. Third thing you need to know in a spiritual battle is how to protect yourself. 
And this passage lists for us a handful of things that will do that. Together, they work like a a suit of armor. Let's take a brief look at them. First on the list is truth. I think this refers both to what we allow ourselves to believe and what we allow ourselves to say. And honestly, each of us really is fully responsible for both of those things. Each of us is responsible for what we allow ourselves to believe and what we allow ourselves to say. In times of great struggle or hardship, it's very important that we go back to the Bible as the authority for what Christians believe and how we live, rather than taking our cues from the unbelieving world around us. It's also important that we make sure that what we say to or about any other person passes the test of truthfulness as defined in Scripture. And I'm going to help you understand that. Remember, the Bible's definition of truth always combines both truth and love. So, if what we have to say can't really pass the tests of truthfulness and love, it is wholly inappropriate for the people of God to open their yappers. We speak the truth in love, or we don't speak. Second thing that works uh, like a suit of armor, defending us, protecting us, is righteousness. That's a tough word, a word that most of us shy away from. We're uncomfortable, uncomfortable, using that word describing ourselves. The Bible, however, does not shy away from it. The words righteous or righteousness show up 493 times in the Bible. It's kind of a lot. And their usage, nearly every time, is either to describe the way a person lives or to prescribe how people are to live. And the word is righteous. Let me help you with a couple definitions of biblical words to kind of sort this out. Holiness and righteousness. We usually use them like they're synonymous. They're not. Holiness is the Bible's word that describes the condition of the human heart whenever we have invited God to come in and transform us in the very core of our being. That the state of being of the changed human heart is holy. Righteousness is the measure of a person's actions. You can tell whether a person's actions are right or wrong. I can't necessarily tell whether Joe's heart is right or wrong, but his actions kind of, well, tell on themselves. We can tell the difference. But instead of looking at Joe's actions, I'll look at mine. How's that? Because Joe's righteousness may have a secondary defensive uh, capacity for me, but my own personal righteousness has a primary defensive capacity. When, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, I do what is right, it defends me against all kinds of accusations, and it defends me against the literal attacks of the evil one, Satan. By the power of God's Holy Spirit... The followers of Jesus are capable of doing what's right. We don't believe that we are bound over to sin every single day in word and thought and deed. We believe that the power of God's Holy Spirit sets people free to live in the way that God dreamed we would when he dreamed us into existence millions of years ago. Giving in to temptation and sin exposes us to deep wounds from our enemy. Those wounds can be fatal. Right behaviors protect us in times of great hardship. Third thing you need to know, whenever um, you're in a spiritual battle and you're looking for a piece of defensive armor, here it is, the gospel of peace. 
It's the next defensive tool in the list, and it's one that we employ in the interest of our own defense. It's a reminder to us that when Jesus came into this world, the angels, you know, they showed up and they made a lot of noise, but they didn't talk much. It was really a, a pretty short address that they made to the shepherds that day, what they did say when they were inaugurating the Messiah child. They said that God was inaugurating his peace in this world. Remember? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. When the Messiah showed up, life was supposed to become about that. It's a reminder to us that when we take up the the message of the gospel, gospel, that's an old English word from, from a Greek word that means good news. Whenever we take up the message of the gospel, we're joining Jesus in bringing good news of peace to earth. That message is that people can have peace with God. Listen, your neighbors want that. Half of your neighbors who say they don't believe in God, that's an accommodation. They just don't want to believe in a God that they've got troubles with. So it's easier to say, ah, I don't think he really exists. The vast majority of people have some real sense that there's a God, and it troubles them because they know things are not good between them and God. One of the reasons God put you on this planet is to help your neighbor know that God's not out to get her. God's not looking down his nose at him. He comes with an offer of peace. And that peace comes whenever we admit that we're at odds with God and we ask him to forgive us. And we just trust that what Jesus did on the cross was enough. It was enough punishment for sin. It was enough sacrifice for sin. It was enough for God to say, okay, that's taken care of. Now let's get on to a peaceful relationship with you. One of the reasons that God put you on this planet is because he knew that you would be one who accepted that peace and could extend it to the people who live right next to you. Being people who keep peace central to our beliefs and attitudes and behaviors protects us from the enemy who loves nothing more and has no more effective tool than to stir up division and murmuring and anger and hatred in local churches. Listen, the enemy's very best work, his very most destructive work, his very most efficient work is getting Christians to abandon peace, to start striking and lashing out against one another. Or that version of it that lashes out um, at the world around us together. Want me to talk politics for a minute? I'll go there. Christians, we conduct ourselves in this world as people of peace. Please say amen to that. Now, the piece of armor that you're going to need is this, faith. Faith protects us too, and and faith means trust. In fact, trust in in the, the, the Greek language, trust is the is the verb form of the noun faith, which otherwise has no verb form. Okay, language lesson. Thanks a lot, Cliff. That's really what I came for. Listen, no one says, um, I faith. I faithed. I faithed three times today, right? There's no verb form of the word faith. There is. It's, it's another word altogether, really. It's trust. Trust means it's, it's the actions that come from faith that I have in my heart. Faith is the decision to trust that what God says is true. Faith says you're probably going to have to make that decision several times every day. Because there's all kinds of things in this world that war against you actually believing that what God said is true. You may feel afraid of the same thing several times in any given day. Faith is the decision that I will trust that what God says is true and he's going to come through for me. It's the decision to move past my feelings of fear or worry, or doubt, 
and to choose to trust God to get me through the hard stuff that we're facing right now. Faith protects us from the ultimate result of letting those feelings run amok, which is despair. Anybody feel close to giving up? That's where feelings take you if you let them rule. Trust says, I feel what I feel, but I have decided that God is true. I can count on him. Next piece of armor, salvation. In warfare, headshots are almost always lethal, hence the development of the helmet. Okay, helmet was not originally developed for football. Sorry, guys. In the context of the New Testament, the word salvation always refers to the relationship between God and man that's only possible if we believe that Jesus was God's son and that he came into this world to get us back together with God. And by connecting salvation with the idea of a tactical helmet, Paul was essentially telling us that if we don't believe these things, then all of our good moral behavior and all of our religious practices and zeal are powerless to defend us against the enemy and the guarantee that Satan will get the killing headshot against us is if we try to be decent religious people but don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion will not protect you. Salvation will couple more. The Word of God. He offers us another defensive tool, the Bible itself. This fascinates me because when Paul was writing this passage saying that the Word of God, the Scriptures themselves, will defend you, he was writing the Bible and didn't know he was writing the Bible. As Paul's writing, the Scriptures, the Word of God, have the ability to defend you. Grab a hold of them. Use them like a sword. Block some of the enemy's shots and get one in for yourself once in a while. Paul was in the very act of writing that paragraph, was writing the scriptures and didn't even know that he was. So what in the world was he talking about? He was talking about that part of the Bible that most of us don't even want to mess with anymore. The Old Testament, which is big and long and quite frankly, embarrassing to people of faith and about a third of the chapters you can't let the kids read, right? I mean, it's, it's braided our stuff. It's bad. Paul said, uh, how about this? How about you grab a hold of that thing? You want to do some more wrestling? Wrestle with the scriptures. See if you can master the scriptures and in the process let the scriptures master you and reshape the way that you think and look for the hand of God in this world and you will find that the scriptures become both a very effective defensive tool and one that allows you to get a shot in once in a while and win the battle. That's why I'm going to say one more time to these two people seated over here, Ed and Tina Benjamin, you are doing the will and the work of God as you continue to help teens with Bible quizzing, and Tina, when you're up there in the corner of the hall on Sunday mornings helping little kids with their memory work, God bless you richly. You guys are armor bearers who have outfitted many of our children very well. Turn to the scriptures often, because if you will, you'll learn how to find the things that will get you through the hard times. Therein lies the importance of daily Bible reading. Christians don't read the Bible daily to get brownie points with God. We read it so we know how to find its treasures so they can get us through the difficult time. Finally, last defensive weapon that we're offered in this passage is two kinds of prayer. The word prayer is a general term that means any kind of conversation with God. In other words, Paul teaches us whatever else is true in times of great difficulty, just keep talking with God because that will protect you from the fears that come in spiritual silence and it'll protect your relationship with him from falling into disrepair where you begin to doubt and suspect God of not being good to you simply because you haven't talked to him in a long time. 
Then Paul mentions a very specific kind of prayer, supplication. Well, English word. While prayer can be a general conversation, supplication means that you are earnestly asking God for something. It comes real close to begging, just so you know. Supplication means earnest asking of God for something. I think that for a lot of us, most of our prayer is some kind of supplication, but it's gutted. We ask God for lots of things. We just don't ask him real earnestly because we're scared to death he's going to disappoint us. We say, well, God, if you, know, you could find a way to possibly maybe help me, but if it, it's, it's not your will, it's okay. And we go shrinking into the distance away from God instead of, instead of boldly asking, God, I need it. Come on. Come through for me. Supplication is respectful, but it is bold and earnest asking. Paul's telling us in this passage that highly motivated, urgent requests are not only appropriate and welcomed by God, but they secure protection for us. Our own personal history shows us that when we don't get absolutely everything that we ask for from God, He knows better than we do and works from a, from a view of the whole picture that you and I just don't have. He doesn't protect us from everything that might be unpleasant to us. But when it comes to attacks from the enemy, Paul urges us to get on our knees and get serious about asking God to do something about it. Those prayers prevail. That's the implication. Toward the end of the passage, Paul urged prayer for all of the believers. So I'll do the same. In light of the persecution and martyrdom of our brothers and sisters in the Middle East this day, I'd be remiss if I did not call the people of First Naz, to prayer for the persecuted church. Paul also asked for prayer for himself. Did you, did you see that in there? He said, and for me, which I think is properly interpreted and applied as a prayer for your Christian leaders. In our case, I want to apply that very directly to our church board members and any other ministry leaders in this congregation. Yes, the scriptures say pray for all the believers. We do that. But then he said, Paul said, pray for me. And I'm applying that to our leaders. I don't see a demon behind every bush. I'm not alarmed. Neither am I being an alarmist or trying to generate some highly emotional outpouring this morning. I'm not afraid of the enemy overcoming or overwhelming us because God is on our side. And the New Testament writers stated repeatedly that Satan is a defeated foe who simply has not yet ceased hostilities. If we hang on, we are going to get through the rough stuff together, this current rough patch. We will. But I want us to do something more than just get through it. I want us to do better than mere survival and see what we have left on the other side of the battle. I want us to win. I want us to crush the enemy and turn back his assault. I want to be able to turn our full attention back to making disciples for Jesus in the LC instead of caring for our own hearts, though there is an appropriate time. And we will win this current battle by putting into practice the things that Paul taught the Ephesians, which I have taught you today. Much of our success will be determined by each of you in your private lives, how well you decide to practice most of what was taught today. Remember the righteousness part. But we're able to do two things publicly whenever we're together. Mornings like this, and we've done one of them already. We've taken the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And now we're going to pray, understanding the upward climb that so many of our church board and their families are facing, all while they try to serve us 
and to lead us. I want to ask you, the church family, to pray for them and to commit to doing that for this coming year. I want to ask the church board members and your spouses to please come and stand at the altar and face me. Ordinarily, at um, altar prayer times, come on, come right now. Uh, we, we encourage people to kneel at the altar, and that, that, that posture of kneeling really is, uh, is a reverential thing. But I'm going to ask you guys to stand this morning, because I think it's a symbolic thing. The, the, the passage said, listen, you've got to be able to withstand the enemy, and the way that you do it is by being strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, and by taking all these defensive weapons and, and warding off the enemy that way and, and taking that one, def- that one offensive weapon, the, the sword of the Spirit, and using it. And he says, when you've done everything, stand. And that's why I want you to stand instead of to kneel this morning. We're in need, aren't we? I know some of you have wobbly knees these days. Your backs are tired from carrying heavy loads. You do not carry those loads alone. God, the Holy Spirit, and your brothers and sisters who are standing behind you are bearing your burdens with you. I want to call the rest of the church family. Come down here. Squeeze in tight, guys. Come up against the altar so we can get the rest of the church family down here and just get a hand on one of these board members or their spouses or get a hand on somebody who's got a hand on them and let's pray. Battles are exceedingly difficult, Lord, when we don't know how they're going to turn out. When we don't know the outcome, we feel encouraged one moment and fearful the next. Thank you that we know how this battle is going to turn out. Jesus, we proclaim our faith in you as the victor. You're the one who ultimately already has triumphed over sin, hell, death, the grave, and the devil himself. We believe in the resurrection of Christ. It means you won. We've read the scriptures. Hebrews says that when you, Heavenly Father, brought the Son into the world, you made everything subject to him. You put everything under his feet. You are the victor, Lord Jesus. Help us to remember that. And would you take that victory and apply it to the skirmishes and the battles that are faced by my friends and brothers and sisters right now? Would you come and not just lift the burden for a little bit? Would you come and win the battle so they don't have to pack all the gear around for a little while? Spirit, would you come? You said you would be the comforter. That's how Jesus build you. But that word means the one who comes alongside and lifts the heavy stuff. Would you come and make the reality of the resurrection a reality for those who, um, quite frankly, instead of uh, getting up out of the grave, they've wondered if this struggle is going to push them into theirs. Spirit of God, come and make the life of Jesus, the resurrected, ascended life of Jesus, the bedrock reality for our leaders. I pray that in the place of torment, there would be comfort. I pray that in the place of worry, there would be peace. I pray that in the uh, empty spots, where it looks like there's a lack, there would come hope from your promise of provision. 
I pray, Lord, that you would hear and answer the prayers of these good people. They pray for their children and their grandchildren's salvation. They pray for us and our children and our grandchildren. And I pray that you would give them the deepest desire of their hearts. Lord, we're gathered as a people before you this morning. We're not going to walk from this place uh, trembling in fear. But mindful of the fact that the battle is yours and you've already won it. 